Welcome to Walking with Freya, a journey through special needs parenting. This podcast is a place for parents and caregivers of children with special needs to share stories, the very real struggles and challenges we face, along with the inevitable love and joy these children have brought into our lives. This is a place for unapologetic honesty, well-intentioned laughter, and endless support. A safe place for us to learn, share, discuss, and help each other navigate this often unexpected journey. Be kind, be supportive, and when you can, keep the humor. My name is Annie, and welcome to Walking with Freya. Hey everybody, welcome back to Walking with Freya. So I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing father, advocate, and author T.J. Nelligan. He wrote the book Live Like Sean, and I'll just read the blurb here to give you all an idea of the wonderful interview that is coming up. In Live Like Sean, entrepreneur, advocate, and former chairman and CEO of the 2014 Special Olympics USA Games, T.J. Nelligan, reflects on the remarkable life of his beloved special needs son, Sean, who passed away in 2019. Sean was born with intellectual disabilities that never prevented him from living a full, rich life or from profoundly touching the lives of everyone around him. With each chapter, the author reveals a vital lesson that Sean taught him about life, told through engaging, funny, and uplifting stories. Nelligan describes how the experience of being Sean's father changed his life for the better and offers readers the chance to let Sean's love, kindness, and gratitude touch their lives too. Now, some of the lessons that TJ mentioned to me that he had learned from Sean really struck me. Being present in the moment, being friendly to everyone, and showing concern for those around you. These are all things we all know we should do ways we should behave and interact with our fellow humans and animals, but sometimes it gets lost in the chaos of adulting in this society, especially these days. So when you're done listening to this episode and you're inspired to get the book, which I know you will be, you can follow the links in the show notes, search the book on Amazon or Barnes and Nobles, or visit his website, tjnelligan.com. And there you can also find pictures of him and his son and their family. And you can read more about them both and and some of the wonderful lessons that you'll encounter when reading this book. Now, while you're doing that, you can also subscribe to this podcast. It's free, I promise. And you can leave a rating and review. And this uh, is all much appreciated and it helps with the visibility of this podcast so that other people can find Walking with Freya and hopefully benefit from these inspiring conversations that we're having here. So TJ is a great storyteller and speaker on the topic of his son and his writing and the lessons that he learned from Sean so I won't keep you all here any longer. I hope you enjoy this conversation and thanks for being here. TJ, hello. Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you. And so one of the things we're going to talk about is your book, Live Like Sean, and that just recently came out, correct? 
it just came out January 19th and uh, it's done um, unbelievably well. Um, we got up to number two on the bestseller in our category for Kindle and number 20 for books, which is shocking to me. And I always say it's not my book, it's Sean's book. And I'm just the messenger and I have been the messenger for, you know, the last 29 years of his life. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Congratulations on your success. Thank you so much. Oh, so it's going well. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, so how about um, we start by you just telling us who Sean is? Well, um, Sean was born in New York City. And uh, the first two months, we thought we took home a perfectly normal baby boy. And over the next two months, it kind of unraveled and he started having seizures. And we started going to doctors and medications. And about two years in, we went to this guy that was the foreknown, you know, uh, neurologist for pediatrics in the world. He wrote all the textbooks, all the students read his books to become a neurologist. And when we sat down with him, he, he, you know, did some different tests with Sean and he talked to Sean and he did a lot of different things and he had his EEGs and all his doctor's records. And Sean waited in the waiting room and his mom, Maggie, and I went into his office and I saw all these diplomas and all these books with, you know, his name on them. And I didn't have a very good feeling because I knew whatever he told me, I was going to have to say he has to be right. So he matter of factly started and said, you know, Sean will never be normal. He has intellectual disabilities. He'll never live a normal life. He probably won't fit into mainstream society. And the older he gets, the more pronounced these different disabilities will become. So we drove home in the car. Nobody said a word. And I remember Maggie putting him to bed in his crib. He was pretty tiny back then. And I walked in and shut the door and put my hands on the crib and looked at him and said, how are we going to live this life, buddy? You know, and I would just cried and cried and cried because it's shocking. You know, you don't expect that. And especially when it's your first child, you don't know anything. If it was our third child, which he has two sisters, more and Megan, maybe we would have noticed something earlier. Um, but that was a very tough day. And then the first eight to 10 years of his life was just going to doctors, going to speech therapy, going to physical therapy, and just seeing all the things that he couldn't do. But then as he you know, became a teenager, he developed this funny personality. He was always happy. He never had a bad day. He'd literally jump out of bed and go, it's going to be a great day. Mm. And that shocked me. And I was like, how does this you know, young man have this great outlook on life? And then I realized which I hope every parent does, is it takes a while, obviously, doesn't happen overnight, but there comes a day when all of a sudden you start to see the world through their eyes instead of your eyes. His dreams weren't shattered. Mine were for my child. I thought I'm entitled to a perfectly normal child. And now I'm sitting there thinking, well, he's never going to be the starting pitcher of his baseball team. And is he ever going to go to the prom? And, you know, the Nelligan name's not going to go on through him. And then I realized he only sees what he can do and what he can achieve and he's perfectly happy to be alive and he had he had this gratitude and and i think that's the hardest thing for most of us to grasp because we're always striving for another goal and build the company bigger and that was my mentality working on wall street and then i had was in college sports marketing for 25 years and the reason that you know type a personalities i think don't ever feel that gratitude even very successful people 
is because by the time you get to the goal, you think it's a destination to be reached. Life is really a journey. And when you get to the, you know, to the goal, what do you do? You move the goalpost and you make a higher goal, which again, doesn't lead to gratitude. And I'm sure people would look at Sean back in the day and say, what does he have to be grateful for? And yet, you know, his sisters more and Megan always said that we thought we had to protect Sean, you know, both mentally where people would hurt his feelings and say mean things. And physically when he'd stumble off and when he was young. And then my daughter gave a speech at her high school graduation. And I was actually tearing up as I recorded it, sitting next to Sean. And she went on and on about what Sean taught us and that we thought we had to teach him about life. And yet the story ends that he taught us way more than we could have ever taught him about so many things. And he got involved in Special Olympics. And then I became involved for 25 years on Special Olympics on the board of Special Olympics, New Jersey. He started playing basketball and soccer and bocce. And he just loved it because now here he is. He is an athlete. And uh, I'll never forget the first day. He was 12 years old. And the College of New Jersey hosted the Special Olympics New Jersey Summer Games each year. And there's about six or 8,000 people in the stands, family and friends and everybody. And I, I gave a little opening welcome to everybody because I was chairman of the board. And law enforcement raises tons of money for Special Olympics. There's hundreds and hundreds of officers there. And these men and women of law enforcement are high-fiving the athletes when they're walking in. And I looked and I saw him high-fiving all these athletes and high-fiving his buddy, Timmy and Bobby. And I said, oh my God, Sean can be an athlete. So it was a really eye-opening experience and it changed our family's life and it changed Sean's life because now we watched him develop friendships with tons of people and the camaraderie of sports is no different for the quote normal athlete in high school than it is in special olympics in fact they're more grateful and they're present in the moment which we have difficulty doing so i think that changed our lives and set us on a path for the next 25 years of seeing through sean's eyes and there comes a day when you don't see the disabilities anymore you only see what they can achieve and what they can do there are so many things that you said that are just beautiful gems of wisdom. Um, one of the things that it was your dreams that were shattered, not his, and how it is this, you know, we have these perceptions when we have our children and we, we want to, you know, jump ahead and, and think of all these things that they're going to be doing in life. And then when you get a diagnosis, I think that there certainly is like this grieving to the loss of, of this vision, this future that you had envisioned. And if we are open enough and, you know, if we give it uh, enough time and, and watch them closely, we see how they do, like they have their own path and, and it's just as beautiful, if not more beautiful than what we envisioned for them. And yeah, so I really appreciate that sentiment. Um, yeah, you're right. It is hard because you're mourning the child you thought you were going to have and then not looking at the child you actually have. And then the day comes when you say, wow. Look at how happy he is. Look how accepting he is of everybody. I mean, especially in our country now, he knew uh -huh. we were all packaged differently, but no matter what, what you know, color or what size or you know, people in wheelchairs, you know, he just hugged everybody. That's the thing I miss the most is him hugging me. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so his, so his diagnosis was an intellectual disability. So did well, we never, we never really got a diagnosis okay. and the, the doctor basically said, you know, it happened in utero in the development of the brain. There's nothing you could have done. 
And, you know, I think it's easier if somebody says, you know, your child has Down syndrome or has X, Y, or Z. Ours was just an onion unraveling over two years. Um, and it was very difficult. But, you know, I, I said, I looked down at him that day and said, how am I going to live with you? And how are we going to live this life? And then when he passed away, I realized and I said in his eulogy, now I don't know how I can live without him. <laughs> oh, you're making me cry. <laughs> it's okay uh, yeah really... it's, a, it's it's very difficult in the beginning but you're in the heat of the battle so you don't think about it until he passed away but you know you're his advocate for finding the right school so he gets the right education and you know being included in all the different activities and community groups and mm -hmm. you know and then he worked you know he he worked at Nelligan Sports Marketing, which was my college sports marketing and media company for 10 years after he turned like 20 with his best friend, Bobby. And he also worked at a restaurant that we had and he loved it. And they were the two best employees we had. They'd come in and do accounts receivable uh, and took such pride in their work. And, you know, we're so excited to show up every day that they were, you know, had to come to work. And I think one of the things, which is a funny story, is that Sean would talk to anybody. If they didn't want to talk to him, he'd move on. But one day, his first day, his mom dropped him off at Nelligan Sports. He came up in the office and I was on the phone and then we got him to work. And at the end of the day, we're leaving the office building and the security guard at the front desk, Sean goes up to him and goes, see you later, Bruno. Nice to meet you. I'll see you next Monday. Say hi to your granddaughters for me. And I go, I look at this man. I've walked by him for 10 years. I wave mm. a little hello, good morning. I didn't know his name. 10 years. He walked by him once. He knew his name and he knew he had two granddaughters that he talked to him about. So I say, oh, Bruno, I'm TJ Nelligan. I, I'm, my office is on the seventh floor. And he goes, oh, yeah, I know who you are. I felt about two inches big. And as we walked to the car, I'm like, Sean, how do you know his name? And he said, Dad, I came in. I told him it was my first day at work. And I was so excited to get to Nelligan Sports Marketing. And I think it just puts in perspective that, you know, whether he met famous athletes because of our business or the doorman, he treated them all with respect and kindness because they treated him that way. They knew even if he asked an inappropriate question, it was coming from a place of authenticity, kindness, you know, and his intent was kind. So it's just so funny. There's a million of those stories that I talk about in the book. And, you know, that's how I came up with Live Like Sean is as I was writing his eulogy, I had all these funny stories I wanted to tell the group. And I came up with the term live like Sean. And I said, live like Sean, not when it's convenient, not when it's easy, but every day. And I talked about all the different things that are in the book of be accepting, be grateful, be a good friend, you know, be happy, which he was. And each chapter was a lesson that he actually taught me. Mm -hmm. And at his memorial, there was almost a thousand people in the room. We had the Special Olympics color guard. We had the bagpipers and his about 20 or 30 athletes came in their uniforms, his basketball team. And when I got done, um, I lost it at the end. And I'll never forget that this teammate of his, James, they're playing a song after I got done. And then after me, Moore and Megan, his sisters were gonna talk and then his mom who all did an amazing job. And I sat down and just lost it. And all of a sudden in this giant crowd, you know, we're sitting up in the first row at a table. It was a banquet hall. Here comes James and I don't even see him coming. And he hugs me from behind and goes, are you okay? 
And no one else in the room would do that, right? Because they would think, oh, well, I can't go hug TJ. But James just saw that I was losing it. And he loved Sean. And he just came up and gave me a giant hug, which is what I needed. Mm-hmm. Oh. <sighs> so I guess we're since we're talking about your son passing away, um, do you have advice for parents who have experienced this as well? How did you how do you deal with something like losing a child? Um, I don't, well, I mean, part of the reason I wrote the book was when I got done with my uh, eulogy, my friend who's on TV in New York and he's written four books comes up to me and he knew Sean for 20 years. And he said, TJ, that was awesome. And that's the outline for your book. You're going to write live like Sean. You know how many people you can help by talking about that story about Sean and his life and, you know, what he meant to people. And it was amazing because I said, you've got to be crazy. I'm not writing a book. And then I decided, you know what? I'll write a book because I thought we'd print 200 copies and I'll give them out to friends and family and his teammates and coaches. And, and I'll 20 or 30 years from now, I'll always remember the stories. I don't want to forget, you know, the stories of how great this young man was. So I did it and it turned out, it took on a life of its own. And it was just, you know, amazing. And I have my co-writer to thank, Teresa DiGeronimo, who we'd sit down and I would just write and write and write and write. And at times I couldn't. The first holiday without him, I didn't do anything for a month. So it was both therapeutic and really hard to write. But the feedback has been amazing because I knew how Sean changed my life. And I knew his sisters realized what a special young man he was and his mom, Maggie, but the letters people sent me from his teammates and his cousins, he's got 25 you know, cousins. They all sent these letters that made me very emotional because I realized he affected everybody. And three of his cousins started a Special Olympics unified track team in Virginia at their high school. And unified is a big part of Special Olympics now. And that's athletes from the high school, varsity, boys and girls, basketball or track or whatever the sport may be, combining and breaking the teams up where they're half Special Olympics athletes and half the high school you know, varsity team. And they play games between them. And what's amazing is the young men and women who end up participating in this that are, quote, normal, end up getting more out of it you know, than anybody does. And that's the amazing thing is the volunteers who don't have a special needs child. I mean, I never would have been involved. I don't think I ever would have known about it. Um, <clears throat> but I got involved because of Sean. So I always say I didn't choose to be involved in Special Olympics. It chose me through Sean. And all the volunteers say, oh, somebody talked me into coming for a weekend. So I came for the weekend, and that was 20 years ago or 30 years ago. <laughs> So it's amazing all these people that create these, you know, it's really acts of kindness that they give of themselves, whether they're coaching or passing out water or just hugging the athletes or high-fiving them after their competitions. It's, it's been an amazing experience to watch all these people. And so I always said, you know, I thought I was going to go straight down the highway and I ended up getting off on this dirt road and I met different people than I would have but it was so much more meaningful and gratifying. And I thank Sean for that. Mm -hmm. So you were the chairman of the 2014 Special Olympics. How, how was that? So that must've been quite a responsibility. 
I imagine. Well, it was probably the, the most gratifying thing I've ever done because I was involved at Special Olympics New Jersey um, for 15 years or so. And Mark Edenson was the president. He was very entrepreneurial. And we decided we wanted to host a big event. So we started four years before the games. We only had a staff of 15, but we had 10,000 volunteers. And we went out and we raised $20 million um, from 62 different sponsors, some at a million, some a half a million, some 250, some 25 grand. Um, and we put on the most amazing high, pro high profile event in the history of Special Olympics North America. Um, and it was just amazing because not only did we have 4,000 athletes and 70,000 spectators during the week and watch the athletes compete in 16 different sports, but what we created was we took a thousand athletes, coaches, volunteers on a boat around Manhattan every night for four nights. So everyone went around the Statue of Liberty, around Manhattan, and they're never going to forget that. I know big corporate executives that haven't done that. So I know they'll remember that for the rest of their lives. And I still get Facebook messages from them saying, oh, that was the best games ever. We had the most fun. And then what we did is we created a boardwalk style Jersey themed you know, thing with the rides and the games and the food. And we even had sand come in to create a beach. Um, and, you know, we had WWE wrestling was a big partner and so was Fox television. And they created so much media and TV shows and athlete profiles all around the country. They would profile a Texas athlete on Fox station in Texas and all the other states. So it was very gratifying, but as I told our staff when we started, I said, we're building an entrepreneurial company. It's going to take us four years, and we're going to be in business for one week. <laughs> so what, do you, what would you say to parents who maybe were thinking about getting their kid involved in Special Olympics, but they're not sure about it, or how would you convince them that they should try that? I, well, I think they should go to their local state chapter and go to, you know, a summer games and just watch it. That's what I did the first time. I went reluctantly. It's my college fraternity brother, Don Slatt, was on the board. And I told him about Sean at a lunch in New York City. And he said, you have to get him involved in Special Olympics. Now, he was too young at that time and too frail to compete. Um, but once I went down there, I walked around. And I watched all these people clapping and cheering and big smiles on their face and hugging everybody. And I was like, wow, Sean can be an athlete. It's just going to be a Special Olympics athlete. And he did. And he participated for 15, no, 17 years, I guess, after he started. Um, and there's many different things they can do. It's basically, you know, there's the first event he did was all he could do was do a 100 uh, meter walk race. So he did that. And then as he got stronger and grew, he started playing other sports. And eventually he was playing basketball and he loved it. And he got pretty good at it, actually. And they also have what's called the Young Athlete Program now, which I wish they had when Sean was five. It's for, I think, five to eight-year-olds. And then they can compete in the regular Special Olympic events at from eight to 80 or whatever. But the Young Athlete Program is basically, you know, physical therapy, speech therapy, but the young kids don't know that's what it is because they're riding a bike with their feet on the ground. They're running through obstacle courses. They're playing catch with balls. They're doing all these different activities, but it's fun. Sean's wasn't fun. We were in a hospital 
they're putting leg braces on him. They're making him walk. He's crying. He's in pain. Hmm. Um, so there's so many other angles and there's so many other organizations out there too, that, you know, I think the first thing you find the best school that has all the services for your son or daughter. And then after that, you find in the community, you know, Sean went to the center for enhancing abilities and he would go there two or three days a week. And they basically, one day they would teach him how to cook something, you know, another day they're doing, you know, dancing and music and art and whatever. But the whole key is not what they're doing. It's that they meet so many more friends and they feel like they're part of the community. So that's, you know, there's something out there. There's all different organizations and you just have to find the right one that fits for your son or daughter. And it does get better. I mean, it's, it's not easy in the beginning for many reasons that we talked about. Mm-hmm. But eventually, when you start to look at the world through their eyes instead of your eyes, you see a completely different world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, and I love that that you talked about you know watching him start to make his own friendships, and so that would be one of the many benefits of doing something like Special Olympics or or finding these special schools, and then being able to yeah to watch these that your kid form these these relationships on their own. And I imagine there's a um, a relief that comes with that when you see and you can trust that they can you know do something outside of of yourself like I just think about that like you know there's so much that I feel like I need to control about Freya's life uh, to an extent so it's nice to find places or organizations or people where I know she can be she's safe to be who she is and um yeah, I think that that's actually a really good point, because I think his mother, Maggie, and his sisters, Maura and Megan, and myself, Sean went everywhere with us. And he blurred out loud in a restaurant sometimes, and people would give you a nasty look or whatever. But he went everywhere, and he knew that he could be himself, that he was loved, and he was himself, and he could be as unique young man that he was. And I think that's what gave him the confidence. You know, when he became a teenager, late teens, I used to call him the mayor. He would literally walk into work and he'd walk around and schmooze everybody like he owned the joint. And it was great to see because he became friends with everybody. And he would talk about sports with one person, you know, his cousin that doesn't like sports. He would talk about what his interests were. And he was very attuned to having those one-on-one relationships, you know, which is one of my chapters in the book that I call be present. And I, you know, me, working my way up through the corporate ladder and having my own company and being an entrepreneur. If I was at a reception and I saw, you know, somebody that that was a bigger shot than the person I'm talking to, I'd say, okay, I got to go. And I'd run over. He would never do that. He was present with the person he was with. And my parents used to come down to the beach uh, every year. And it was a tradition that my, he would go buy tickets at this little local theater for him and his grandmother. And my dad would tease him and say, Sean, I'm coming with you. Nope, Papa, only grandma's coming. I go, we can't go. And we go to the box office. We'd ride our bikes. And Sean and I go to the box office the day before they're coming. I say, how many tickets are we getting? Four? No, silly. Stop teasing me. We get two tickets and grandma and I are going and no one else is allowed to go. And he had those special, you know, events and things that he did with different people. You know, one of my good friends who worked for me, Tom Varga, Sean was a big Rutgers fan and Rutgers was one of the many schools we represented. And every year he would ask Sean, who's your favorite player this year as they graduate or went into the NFL or whatever. 
And Tom would go out and he would get Sean the jersey of that player, whoever that player was the year um, that Sean would pick his favorite player. And so he had these relationships that were unique with each person. And he had nicknames for them all. You know, my friend Andy Duke, he called him Dookie. Hey, Dookie. And my friend Nick, he called him Nicky Boy. Everybody had a nickname. And I think that's what endeared him to people was it came from a place of authenticity. And he was just genuine in everything he did. And I think if we all lived like that, think about how much more fun we'd have and how much more happy maybe we would be. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if we, uh, yeah, it's not, he sounds very personable. And, and, you know, when you meet somebody that genu- genuinely likes to meet people and get to know them, he sounds like, uh, like that, that's who he was. And that is something that really is endearing. And that's a great, it's a great quality to have. I have a nephew who is almost 30 now with an intellectual disability. And he also is very, very friendly. He's always, you know, walking into room and has something to say right away and, and, you know, says hi to everybody. It's very sweet. Right. And that's the key. I mean, that's another quality and lesson he taught us was to be friendly. I mean, I got on a plane before COVID and I saw this uh, girl who had Down syndrome and she was sitting there with headphones on and her parents were doing something and she was all by herself. And by fate, I get in line behind her. Her parents are in front of her. She's right in front of me. And she turns and looks at me and goes, hi. I said, what are you doing here in Florida? She said, oh, I went and I swam with the dolphins. And she went on for 10 minutes about her, you know, swimming with the dolphins and all the fun she had. And I said, I should have talked to her sooner. And Sean would have been sitting next to her talking to her about the dolphins. And I think being genuinely friendly, you know, people say, hey, how are you? They don't even hear your answer. He cared when he asked those questions. You know, one of the funny stories is, you know, he would say things that, you know, we would never say, but we were at the Super Bowl and we're in the lobby of the Super Bowl when the Giants beat the Patriots and all of a sudden Peyton Manning walks in. And Peyton Manning looks over and sees Sean with his Eli jersey and says, hey, that's, I know that guy. And Sean looks at him with a big, loud voice and says, you're Eli's brother. <laughs> and Peyton Manning just lost it. He laughed so hard. <laughs> we chatted about Special Olympics because the Mannings were involved in a, a lot of different things. And the irony is nothing happens by accident. Two years later, when I was in Hoboken, where I live, I'm walking down the river. And I say, Sean, that looks like Eli Manning. And he goes, nope, too small. Nope, he's too small. I said, well, he doesn't have his pads and his helmet on. And as he gets closer, Sean goes, oh, my God, that's Eli Manning. And we chatted with him. And I tell him the Peyton Manning story. And he actually says, hug Sean. He goes, that was you, buddy? Nobody talks to my big brother like that. I love you. You're my man. (laughs) And then we we were playing the Eagles that weekend. And Sean looks at him with a sad face and says, Eli, please beat the Eagles. I hate them because we had lost five or six times in a row. And Eli mimics Sean. He gets a sad face and he goes, I'll try, Sean. I hate them too. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Wow. Sounds like he had a really wonderful life. Nice, rich life full of uh, good relationships and a lot of adventure too, it sounds like. Yeah, he was just genuinely himself. And I think because of his sisters and his mom and me, that he felt like he could be himself and be comfortable and act you know, the way he did and ask people questions. The, the, the recipients of those questions would laugh because 
they know he doesn't mean it, you know, in a mean way. He's just genuinely kind and friendly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just wondering, do you have a favorite chapter in the book or a favorite lesson? I mean, imagine it's probably pretty hard to pick, but, uh, you know, something. Well, I, mm-hmm. I, I think the, the most amazing thing he taught me was to be present because, you know, I just was running after goals and build the company and get more colleges and universities. And, you know, he taught me that you're missing out on life. You're missing out on today. He didn't think about, you know, regrets from the past or any other things. And obviously because he had special needs, he didn't have the worries of, you know, paying bills or any of those things, but he just taught me to be present. I mean, we would go to so many sporting events. We were the last people out of the parking lot at every sporting event. He would never leave, even if somebody was losing by a ton. You know, we went to Derek Jeter's last home game at Yankee Mm -hmm. Stadium. And it's the top of the ninth inning and the Yankees are winning by three. And I said, all right, buddy, come on, let's go. Game's over. He goes, you crazy? (laughs) We're not leaving. You know, we don't leave. And so what happens is the Orioles tie the game in the top of the ninth. And then Derek Jeter gets up and hits a walk-off single to win the game in his last home game probably one of his many iconic moments but probably you know one of the um, unbelievable moments as he rounds first base and is jumping up in the air the stadium I thought was going to fall down the people were it was like a Hollywood ending and I would have missed that I would have missed that because I would have left yeah that's great so what what would you like to leave people with as far as um, your book or Sean's life and his legacy? Well, I think that, you know, the biggest thing that parents need to remember is to let them be themselves, let them be their unique person. Um, And whatever, Sean used to anywhere. If I'm in the middle of a meeting or I'm standing in a reception, he decided he was going to hug me right at that moment. And he'd hug you all the time. And that's what I missed the most was, you know, that's why it's his book. The thing I missed the most is he didn't care where we were or when it was. He decided I'm hugging my dad and telling him I love him all the time. So the one thing I said at the end of my eulogy was I have regrets like we all do. Maybe we want to do over from something we did years ago or whatever. But I was with Sean all the time. And I learned so much from him that I said at the end that my relationship with him, I had no regrets. And that gives me peace. Mm. Well, that's beautiful. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of Sean stories on our website too, tjnelligan.com. And mm-hmm. his, his buddy, Bobby just wrote a piece for the New Jersey Special Olympics that's on there. And they can learn more about Sean and see some of the stories about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the pictures, him with his sisters and and um you two together yeah it's a great website i was checking out and i think i saw something about he had a um had a penchant for uh questionable r-rated jokes was that something that i read on there yeah well that's the funny thing is you know (laughs) he couldn't read he couldn't do math but he knew with the score of the game and he he basically site memorized every college sports logo and one day the scores are scrolling across the bottom of espn he starts telling me who's winning every game and we go to a Giants game. He goes, Dad, 7 nothing Giants. If we score again, it's going to be 14 nothing." And I would look at him and go, how do you know that? So I always said, and his mom and his sisters also say, he knew so much more than we thought he did because he'd sit there and there'd be a, you know, R-rated joke on the TV and he'd start laughing so loud. And you're like, how do you understand that? That's crazy. 
Oh, that's funny. <laughs> well, he sounds like a, a wonderful person and, and what a blessing to have had him in your life. And he, um, yes, he was. And I miss him every day, but I have the memories um, and the book. So I can't forget mm. now. Yes. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and Sean's story. And I will be sure to direct people to your website and to your book. And uh, it sounds like it's a really beautiful um, memoir of your son and, and the lessons to be learned. So I'm grateful for that. And yeah, thank well, you so I much appreciate for your time. Thank you so much for having me on. You're doing great work because if we can help just one family, that would be great.